Well, I should probably introduce myself to y'all. Um, <laughs> my name's Roger Poupard, and I've been gone for the last four weeks. Uh, two of those were a vacation. I was uh, privileged to celebrate my 25th anniversary with my lovely bride, and so we went to Alaska for a four-night cruise, and the kids were, yeah, it was beautiful, but the kids were very put out that we weren't going to bring, be bringing them. Our 13-year-old said, you're not going to have any fun without us. <laughs> and uh, my wife said, well, we'll figure it out. Uh, but then uh, I spent two of the other weeks on a study break, kind of preparing the next sermon series. We're in Philippians, and we'll be in it for a little while. But I wanted to let you know what's coming, because part of it is going to be audience participa- participation. Uh, what I want to do is do a questions asked series. Uh, I have a lot of questions that I hear from the congregation, so some of those will probably be the themes that we use for some of these messages. But if you've always wanted to hear a sermon on something and were wondering if you'd ever have uh, the opportunity to hear it, here's your chance. Because what I'm going to ask you to do is to think about questions that you would like to see answered from the Bible. And then you'll have an opportunity to email those questions to me. And what we'll do is take the top topics, the top categories that people send in, and uh, we'll do a sermon series on what does the Bible say about. It could be a cultural issue, it could be a theological issue. Uh, So you'll see next week, and by the way, the opportunity just to email, but you can go ahead and begin thinking of that, and if you want to email me, you can. Just send it to my email address in the back of the bulletin, rogerp at waysidechapel.org, and we'll do a, a, a sermon series on questions from the Bible, what does God have to say about this? And then after that, we'll do the book of Jonah, and then we'll be into Christmas. So I think that's about as far as I want to give you a preview of what we're going to be covering. But what we're going to do today is step back into the series in the book of Philippians. Uh, When we left off last time in the book of Philippians, you'll recall that we were in chapter 2. And in chapter 2, what we saw is that God has given us two great examples of how we are to live the Christian life. Now, the first and the greatest example, the ultimate example for any of us, is that of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And what we saw is that God gave us the example of His Son, who left heaven to come to earth, who humbled Himself, emptying Himself to take our place, ultimately going to the cross and giving His life as the ultimate sacrifice to pay the penalty of sin and death for us. Now, the second example that we saw in chapter 2 was that of the Apostle Paul, He was a man who was willing to also give his life. You'll recall he was in a prison cell as he writes this letter to the church at Philippi, and he was willing to even die for the gospel, the sake of spreading the good news of the gospel. And as we look at these examples, it would be easy for many of us to say, you know, we can't live up to those. I mean, when it comes to Jesus Christ, he is God. So how can we as mere men and women follow that example? And maybe you're thinking, well, Paul, even though he was a mere man like us, he was an apostle. And thus he had been given supernatural abilities and experiences like seeing the resurrected Lord himself. So again, how can we imitate him? Now the answer for us is found in Philippians chapter 2.13 that we looked at last time. In Philippians 2.13, you'll recall that we saw that God said, for it is God who is at work in you, in me and you. And this is the Greek word that we looked at. It's energeo. This word means to energize, to provide enablement. And so the answer is, we're not doing it alone. When we become a believer in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that we are given God's presence within us. He indwells us. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit. And he gives us his power and the ability to live the Christian life. 
Now, we're not left to do it on our own, but it's through God and what he's given to us. And as we think about this, I want you to turn with me in your Bible to Philippians chapter 2, where we're going to pick up today in verse 19. And what we're going to find here is that God gives us two additional examples, two everyday examples of men who are like you and I, who lived the Christian life, who followed what it is that God called us to do. So in Philippians 2, 19 through 24, this is what we read. Paul says, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he has served me in the forbearance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately, as soon as I see how things go with me, and I trust in the Lord that I myself also shall be coming shortly. Now, the first example we're looking at here today is a man by the name of Timothy. And Paul begins by describing him as one who is a kindred spirit. The word literally means same-souled. It means to have uh, a like-mindedness that is so close. Have you ever seen one of those couples uh, or maybe a friendship where the people are so close to one another, uh, they can almost finish, finish each other's sentences? They seem to always be thinking and doing the, the same things. And this is what Paul says about Timothy. He says he has the same mind in pursuing the things of God. Now, this is in stark contrast to what he says about those in verse 21. Because he says there, they all seek after their own interest, not those of Christ Jesus. There, there were many of those who were around Paul who were like a little boy who was on a, a rocking horse. He, he had gotten, uh, the parents had bought their kids one of these uh, rocking horses, and the little boy was sitting on it. And his little sister was so excited about the horse as well, she was on it with him. And as they were trying to rock together, they were kind of crowded together. And the, the little boy turned to his sister, and he said, you know, if one of us would get off, there would be more room for me. <laughs> and this is what it was like for many of these individuals. They were thinking of themselves. Now, as we see earlier in Philippians 2, verses 3 through 4, we were told there, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And when we looked at this passage, you'll recall that we talked about the way that we as believers can have joy in our life is by living according to this acronym, where we would say Jesus first, others second, and then you yourselves next. And what Paul was saying is those in his day were not living this way. They had inverted it the other way, and they were saying we are first. What we want, our own interests are ahead of others and ahead of that of Christ. But what we as believers are called to do in order to have joy in our life is to serve Jesus first, others second, and then you yourselves last. And as we look at this, Timothy was an example of this. He had learned what it means to serve Christ and others before himself. And as you look through the scriptures and you look at the life of Timothy, you find where this foundation started. It was very early in his life in his own home. If you read in uh, 2 Timothy 1.5, there Paul writes this about Timothy. He says, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice, and I am sure it is in you as well. 
Do you see where the foundation started? As a very young boy in his home, he had a godly grandmother and a godly mother who were examples of what it was to put Jesus, others, and then themselves. In addition to these godly ladies, Timothy also has the example of Paul in his life. In fact, Paul, it appears, was the one who helped lead Timothy to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Because in 1 Timothy 1-2, he calls Timothy, my child in the faith. And after he came to faith in Christ, Paul was there to mentor him, to help him grow, to help him know what it was to be a man who followed hard after God. Now, some of you may be sitting here right now thinking, you know, Roger, as you're you titled your message, Everyday Examples for Us to Emulate, to, to Follow. Well, this doesn't sound like an everyday example to me. I mean, here's a guy who was a pastor in training. Here's a guy who grew up in a home that had a godly foundation. I mean, this guy had godly parents. He had, he had a good and easy life. That doesn't sound anything like my life. So how can I really follow after somebody like Timothy? Well, for starters you need to think more about who Timothy was and what he faced. If you've read about him in the scriptures, you know that everything wasn't a bed of roses for Timothy. For starters, he had physical issues. As you read in 1 Timothy 5.23, it tells us he had some sort of stomach problem and he had frequent other ailments. Paul was instructing him on how he could care for his physical infirmities. And then speaking about his flesh, he had a bigger problem from just his physical issues. Because as you look at the background of Timothy, while he had this godly grandmother and godly mother who uh, were teaching him to know and love the Lord to follow, they were Jews. Timothy had a Gentile father, a Greek father. And as you look at the influence in the home, it appears that his father, this Gentile, had a, had a pretty significant influence as well to the point that he kept Timothy from being circumcised according to the Jewish law. And we know this because it wasn't until later in life, uh, in Acts 16.3, where Timothy was on a missionary journey with Paul as a grown man that it says he was circumcised. As you read the passage there, you know he wasn't circumcised in order to be saved, but as a Jew coming through the mother's line, uh, he was going into a Jewish area to evangelize, and Paul knew it would be an issue, a stumbling block for the Jews they were trying to reach. And so here was a man who had some advantages in life, but he also had a lot of uh, deficiencies, physical weaknesses. He had a mixed spiritual heritage. You recall that a, a, a Samaritan was a, a Jewish and Gentile mixture, and they were seen as half-breeds and hated by others. So this was Timothy. He was a man who was uh, going into a society where, where some were marginalizing him right out of the gate. And yet he was a man that we see was used greatly in the furtherance of the gospel. Some of you here may live in a home where where you're a little bit like Timothy. Maybe you have an unbelieving parent or you have an unbelieving spouse. And as you are in that situation, you, knew, you know about how hard it is sometimes, but you're in the very place that we're talking about today where we're called to be everyday examples, godly examples for others to see and then follow. You'll recall if you read 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 2, it says this about a wife who may be married to an unbelieving husband. It says that if you have a husband who is disobedient to the word of God, he can be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. It's saying that your life can speak louder than your lips. The example of who you are as you love the Lord and as you follow him can draw an unbelieving, a disobedient husband to know and love the Lord. 
You can have that impact even if you're not a spouse or a parent, maybe as a child. I came to know the Lord as my Savior at the age of 16, and I was raised in a home where there was some religious upbringing and background, but there was not a, a real knowledge of the true gospel, the gospel of grace. And over time, I had the privilege of leading my mom and four of my five brothers and sisters to the Lord in that home. And some of you will have that opportunity as well, being the only believer in a home or maybe in a workplace or in a school situation where you, as you live out your life for the Lord, people will be able to see that and they'll be able to be drawn to Jesus and respond. As you think about the life you're living now, can you say that it would help somebody come to Christ? Could your life be something that helps someone come to Christ? Now, as you consider that question, I want to give you an illustration that might help us using this piece of rope. If you think about your life being like this rope, you know, it's easy for us to be in a situation where we say, well, I'm telling others about Jesus. And uh, if you think about wanting somebody to follow through with what you're saying, if I tell this rope, I want you to go over there. Okay, go over there. That's where you need to be. How effective is that? Or, or maybe you can even tell it, you know, look, go over there. You need to go over there, and, and you're, you're trying to make it do it that way. And there may be some little measure of success, but, but not much. Now, if you think in terms of your life and your life being an example, and you say, this is what God wants us to do, and this is where God wants us to be, you're much more effective as you lead by example. Individuals will see that and will follow that. Friends, which would you rather hear, a sermon every day or see a sermon? It's more effective if people see you living out what it is that you're calling them to do. And this is the, the picture that we're being given here of being everyday examples of those who are walking with God and showing people the way. Certainly, we need to share the good news with our lips. The book of Romans says, how can they uh, come to faith without a preacher, without understanding, without hearing the good news? And yet our lives often speak louder than our lips. Now, as you think in terms of, of showing somebody the way, Timothy was one who, who had that. He had a foundation. He had a godly grandmother, a, go a godly mother. Then he had Paul in his life. And Paul was one who had a Timothy that he was building into and mentoring. And for all of you here who are believers in Christ, I have a question for you. Who are the Timothys in your life? Who are the individuals that you are building into? Who are the ones that you are teaching? 2 Timothy 2.2 tells us this. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It says what you've heard throughout your life, the good news of the gospel, the truth that others have imparted to you, who are you passing that on to? We're told to be multipliers, equippers, men and women who take what we've learned and we pass it on to others who will then take what they have and pass it on to others. After Paul built into Timothy's life, he told him, now it's your turn to do that with others. Now again, you may be sitting here saying, Roger, I'm not a Timothy. I'm not this pastor in training. Friends, do you realize you don't need a piece of paper on the wall that says you're a seminary graduate in order to share the good news of the gospel? God doesn't call on all of us to be those who are a pastor in training or a missionary who have devoted our lives fully to be somewhere else. He's called all of us 
to impact the world where we are. All that we need to do, as 2 Timothy 2.2 says, is to take what you've heard from others and to share it with others. And as you think about all that you've learned throughout your life, what are you passing on to others? All you need to know is what the good news of the gospel is, that Jesus came and he gave his life and he died on the cross to save others, including yourself, from our sins. And you tell somebody else that. That's what God is calling us to do. And you know what you find is that as you share what you know about the Bible with others, it will force you to grow in your own walk. It will help you to grow. I love it when people come up to me on Sunday morning or throughout the week and, and they'll say, Roger, I, I, I'm not really, I haven't been a Christian very long and, and I was trying to share my faith with somebody and, and I got to this point and I didn't know what to say. And they had all these questions and, and how do I answer that? And so then I'll tell them, well, here's a passage you can go to. This is what you need to look at. This is maybe something to share. And as they get that, you know what happens? Two things. First of all, the other person that they're sharing with begins to grow as they get more information. And the person here is growing as they're learning more, as they're developing in their walk with God, or as they're forced to dig in and find more answers themselves. And as you think about your own life, you, you know this is true as well. If you're out there involved in the lives of others, giving out, giving out, those who have to teach have to prepare week in and week out and learn more and give more, and it keeps you growing. It's like the idea of exercising a muscle. And the more that you work it, the, the bigger and the stronger that it becomes. It's one of the benefits of, of having someone you're building into. It will help you continue to grow. It will help you as you serve others. Now, many of you are already doing that. I know so many of you serve faithfully here. You know, the fact that I could go away for a, a month and know that this church would not lose a step, that it would continue to grow because God's given us a great set of other pastors who can come and effectively teach God's word and others that will run the ministry. And many of you are serving in places throughout. I saw that uh, just last week again as I was not up here teaching, but I had the opportunity to be over in the children's area teaching. And to be in one of the classrooms, it was fun to, to be in. I was teaching the four-year-olds, and as I was in there teaching them, you know, this is a tougher crowd in here than it is over there. And you even get snack time over there unlike in here. <laughs> so I think I'm going to be over there more Sundays than up here. But, you know, many of you are serving faithfully. And some of you may be saying, well, Roger, I want to serve, but, but I'm not sure uh, where to serve. Well, a great place to do that. I just spoke with one of the, the women this morning as I was walking around pre-service and she said, you know, I'm retiring and I'm ready to step in and serve. How do I do that? Well, one place to do it is to go to our website at waysidechapel.org and you see that button on the bottom that says volunteer. And if you click on that button that says volunteer, it will take you to various ministry opportunities that are here at the church. And it'll give you a whole list of things that you can do to serve. And uh, another thing that we're looking at doing, we've been beta testing this, is uh, an online spiritual gifts survey. We've done a Discovering Your Gifts class in the past, but we're working on, a, on an online thing that you can do uh, that will fit your schedule where you can do it from home. And uh, we're looking forward to rolling that out in the future. But until then, uh, a good place to start is to say, what are your passions? You know, when you think about the way that God has designed you to serve, you've seen us use this acronym before of SHAPE. S stands for your spiritual gift. H is your heart. A is your ability. P is your personality. Uh, if you're somebody who's not an extrovert, then being a greeter or an usher probably isn't your sweet spot. 
but there are other places you can serve. And then E is your experience. And you say, what is it that God has equipped and gifted me to do? We have a, a legal committee here made up of godly lawyers in our church who give of their abilities in that area. We have a finance committee where those who serve in the accounting world are those that, that do checks and balances and help us to be a ministry of integrity and things. So there are people who have experiences and they utilize those. And so you can say, what are your passions? I mean, if you don't like to teach, when I was teaching the four-year-olds, I was still teaching. It was just a different context, you know, but it was still exercising that same type of gift. And so you can ask yourself, what is it that you enjoy doing your passion? And that's usually a good, a good starting place to plug in and say, is this something that I want to do? Now, maybe you've come from a church in the past where when you made yourself available, it meant you were locked into a lifetime commitment and you're afraid to step into something because you'll never get out of there. Friends, we don't want you in a place where you're not a good fit or where you're miserable. So we have what we call first-serve opportunities. You get to try it before you buy it, so to speak. Go in there and see. Do I enjoy this? Does it, you know, was I effective? And if not, then go to the next opportunity and the next. And so we want you to try things, and we don't want you to be in a place that you're not a good shape, a good fit. As you serve according to your spiritual gifts, you will benefit, the body will benefit, and the people you are impacting will benefit. Not just here within the doors of Wayside. Many of you serve faithfully in ministries outside of the doors of our church. And as we talk about this, this multiplying benefit to everybody, we see that was the case with Timothy in verse 22. There it says, But you know of his proven worth, that he has served me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. You know, as I read those words, Timothy was a child serving his father. It gives us a good picture of what many of us look like as we begin to, to step into that role of serving, as we move from being a, a, a pew sitter, so to speak, to a person who is on the field engaged in the ministry. And we know that there's always that learning curve and development. As you think about a child serving his father, I thought about my own kids and how they sometimes help me. Parents, have you ever had that experience where the kids come up and they say, I help? And you're thinking, okay, my, my workload just went through the roof. It's going to multiply the amount of effort and time and other things. And yet as you think about that, about developing them and moving them to that place of maturity, think about the picture here of Timothy, who was a child in the faith who ultimately would move into the, the role of taking over. Rusty Stevens of the Navigators describes it this way. He was thinking about what happens when his children sometimes help him. And he said, one day I was out mowing the lawn. I was fervishly pushing the mower around our yard trying to finish before dinner. And suddenly Mikey, our six-year-old, walked up and without even asking, stepped in front of me and placed his hands on the mower handle. Now, knowing he wanted to help, he said, I quit pushing. And he said, as soon as I did, suddenly the mower quit moving and there was my son. And he said, I chuckled inwardly, and I wanted to say, get out of here, kid, you're in the way. But then he said, instead, I, I said to my son, son, let me help you. And he said, as, as I began pushing, he said, I had to bow my back. I had to lean forward and walk spread-eagled. And he said, the mowing continued, but much less effectively, slowly and less efficiently than before Mikey was helping me. And he said, suddenly tears came to my eyes. 
as I realized this is the way my heavenly Father allows me to help him build his kingdom. He said, I pictured my heavenly Father at work seeking, saving, and transforming the lost. And there I was with my weak hands helping. My Father could do the work by himself, but he doesn't. He chooses to stoop graciously to allow me to co-labor with him. Friends, are there times that you've ever been tempted just to say in a place of service and ministry, look, I'm just going to do it myself. It's faster, it's easier. If I do it myself, rather than teaching, rather than training, rather than working with that individual to help them develop those gifts, those skills, and those other things. You know, as you look at the life of Timothy, what we're told is he went from a child who was probably in the way to a partner in the ministry. He went from a child who was in the way to a partner in the ministry who was now ministering to his spiritual father, Paul. Paul was in prison. Paul was unable to go and to minister directly to these other churches anymore. Paul was unable uh, to do things that he needed, including some of his basic needs. As he was there in prison, others had to come and serve him, had to feed him, had to help him. And later in life, as he was nearing the end, he had other needs that were taken care of by those who came alongside him. And for those who are involved in this process, sometimes it seems painfully slow. And it's not just when we help other people. Think of your own lives, that learning curve in your own life. And as you had to learn to begin uh, the ability to begin to teach and to train and to do things with others. And sometimes we get frustrated with this slow development process, but we need to stick with it. In those times where you're tempted to give up, remember how Timothy went from Paul's son to his servant to ultimately his substitute. And Timothy was able to step into this role as Paul was now in prison and couldn't be present in those places. And as you look at your life as you're multiplying or ministering others, um, think about those that will one day take your place or will go to those places where you cannot go yourselves. Now, I'd love to just talk about Timothy the rest of our time, but there's another man that is mentioned in verses 25 through 30. There Paul says, But I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my needs, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him also only, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly, in order that when you see him again, you may rejoice and may be less concerned, and, and, and I may be less concerned about you. Therefore receive him in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Now, unlike Timothy that we find mentioned many times throughout the Bible, do you realize Epaphroditus only shows up in this letter? In fact, he's only mentioned twice. One is here and another time in chapter 4. He was a little-known face in the crowd. For most of the people during this first century church, nobody would have known who Epaphroditus was. He was known within one fellowship, but God knew who he was. And God picked this man out of the crowd and he said, I want men and women today to know about this faithful servant in this day. The first thing that we're told about him is that he was a trustworthy man. 
We see that by the fact he was sent on a long voyage with the cash gift to support Paul. You know, as you think about the money that was sent, here was a man who was not content just to put some money in the offering plate to send to Paul, but he said, I want to put my life in the plate. I want to devote myself as, as somebody who's willing to go, to be the courier, to be the minister to Paul in this prison in Rome. And as he went, it was, it was a, a risk for him. You know, on this trip, Epaphroditus was one who became sick. We're told he didn't just have a physical ailment. He, came, he was so sick, it was at the point of death. But we're told that there was a, another sickness for him as well that we'll talk about here in just a moment where he was distressed. But as you think about him being there and he gave his life and he becomes sick, Paul says it was necessary for me to send him from Rome back to you in Philippi. And as he does so, Paul knows that there's a risk. If Epaphroditus, who was sent out as a missionary or a minister from this church to this foreign country, suddenly returns back, and people say, what are you doing? We sent you to be there with Paul. And Epaphroditus says, well, Paul sent me back over here. And Paul knew that there would be some who would say, oh, sure, you're just like John Mark, aren't you? If you've read through the gospel, I mean, through the book of Acts, you know that there was a man by the name of John Mark. And he was out on a missionary journey with Paul. And things got so tough on that trip that John Mark said, I quit. And he abandoned Paul. And in Acts 16, uh, he returned. Now later, God redeemed John Mark, and he raised him up and restored him and returned him to service. So when we have a failure in ministry, it doesn't mean that God is done with us. But Paul knew there was a risk that when Epaphroditus returned, that some would say, well, you just cut and ran when things got tough. You couldn't handle it. And so what Paul does is he writes specifically to say, I'm the one who sent Epaphroditus to you. In verse 26, he says he was longing for the Philippians. You see the word distressed, which means to be away from home. Literally, it's homesick. Now, again, this isn't like a little boy or girl who's away at camp and they become homesick for mom and dad. This, this is a word that describes a deep longing in your soul. And what it tells us is Epaphroditus was such a part of the fellowship, such a part of the church, that when he was separated from those other believers there in Philippi, that he missed them, that he grieved not being around his brothers and sisters. I wonder how many of you feel that way when you miss church, when you miss your ABF, when you miss a small group fellowship that you're a part of. Do you ever sit there and say, I'd rather be with those believers than at the basketball game, or away on this trip, or just sitting at home? Are you homesick for the believers? You know, when you come to church here at Wayside, we don't want you just to sit in the back. I know there are people in a church our size that slip in the door, and right before the message is over, they slip out so they don't have to interact with people when they're coming or going. What God wants us to do is to be those who plug in, and, and those who know one another, who do, who do life on life. It's why we as a church try to set up, we, we have what we call the foyer, the living room, and the kitchen idea here. And you think about your home, the foyer, the front door is where everybody comes to your house. Delivery people, uh, people who are dropping something off, um, everybody comes through the front door. But friends are invited into your home. They go beyond the foyer. They come, they come into the living room. 
And you say, this is a, a larger setting and we want you to sit down and we want you to, to enjoy some time, some, some uh, can I get you something to drink? And we have a little conversation. And this you can think of as being like our adult Bible fellowships, our, our gatherings of our Sunday schools where you can get around, you know, 20 to 60 people and you can be in a, in a situation where it's not just faces in the pew in the foyer, but now you're getting to know people in the living room. And then ultimately, the kitchen is where your close friends come, isn't it? They're the backdoor people who come in and they sit down and they have coffee with you and, and you, you, know, you say, hey, you're, you're part of the family. There's the fridge, there's the pantry, you need something, go get it. And that's kind of the small group where you get into these even smaller uh, groups of six, eight, 10, 12 people within where you can really know one another. And this is what we want you to do in a church like Wayside. As we get bigger, we have to grow smaller. And so we encourage people to, to plug in and get deeper. And as you think about having this life on life, I, I saw what that looks like last Sunday night. I'm part of a, a small group here in our church, one of our life groups. And we were over at somebody's home, and, and there were six or seven um, couples that had gathered with their kids. Our kids were all there together, and they were playing, and, and we were having kind of a potluck. And one of the women in our group had just received news of, of some cancer. And she had been diagnosed with a, with a fairly aggressive breast cancer. And I had known about that the week previously. She had called our house, and we had prayed with her, and we had been involved. But it was wonderful to, to come alongside this family to see her and her husband say to the group, look, we've got some news we need to share. And as she shared the news, these, these couples that have gotten to know them and have been involved in their life uh, said, we're going to surround you. We're going to support you. We're going to be a part of this. And, and the women huddled over together on the side, and they were you know, ministering to her, and the men came over here, and we were ministering to the husband. And this is what the body of Christ is to look like. Friends, just as we are not those who try to live our lives alone, it is God's power in us that energizes us. God says to us as Christians, you're not to be Lone Ranger in it. And you know, even the Lone Ranger had Tano, didn't he? <laughs> what he says is you are to have somebody walking with you and through this. You read the book of Hebrews and it tells us, do not forsake fellowshipping together as is the habit of some. It tells us as believers not to, to spurn gathering together as a church. It says we are to gather together so that we can encourage and support. The word used there is spur one another on. It's literally helping the other person sometimes drive spurs into the flanks and say, giddy up, we got to get going on this. And this is the picture. God wants us coming together as a church and having life on life, having others that can walk with us through life. And this was Epaphroditus. He was one who was being sent to support Paul in this greatest time of need. And Paul, who was facing death himself, said, you know what, I'm going to send you Epaphroditus back. Talk about a selfless act. Paul, who was alone and wanted this fellowship, said, it's more important to me that you get to go home and go back. These men were putting into practice what we read in Philippians 2, 4, where it says not to look out for your own interest, but also for the interest of others. And as he sends Epaphroditus back, he says in verse 25 that he was not a quitter. He was not a hindrance to me. He's a brother, a fellow worker, a fellow soldier, your messenger and minister to me. Paul wants Epaphroditus to get the hero's welcome that he deserves when he shows back up in Philippi. And this is something we should be doing uh, here in our church, whenever one of our missionaries comes home, or when we have somebody in our ministry that, that has served faithfully, 
we should, we should honor those people. You know, Saturday, our junior high group returned from a missions trip. And there were three van loads, these, you know, these big 15-passenger vans full of kids. There were three of them that returned into the parking lot after a week away with all these kids. And there were men and women in our church that gave up vacation time, took the whole week to go to Houston to serve with these kids, to be with them. And as they pulled into the parking lot and as the van doors opened in these you know, exhausted kids. I know mine was one of them. My 13-year-old daughter comes rolling out of the van. Uh, you know, looked like she hadn't had a shower in a week, even though she had. But, you know, and all this trash and things is rolling out of the vans, and you're thinking, wow, you know, looks like a good time. <laughs> and as I was unpacking her luggage, everything in there was, was co-mingled and wet and dirty. And you're, think about the parents, these volunteers that served for the whole week with these kids. They were the Epaphroditus's. They were the men and women who, who were ministering, who were giving up of their own interest in order to see lives changed for all eternity, not only the people impacted by our, our kids, but to see these kids who have a whole new perspective on life, who have been stretched and are growing in their faith. It's what happens every week around Wayside when we run into those people that are like Epaphroditus. You know, I just went and served one Sunday in the four-year-old's group. But there was one of our high school girls who was a, a weekly volunteer that was in there. And up and down the halls, there are literally hundreds of men and women who serve faithfully to impact those kids. It's our greeters and our ushers, people who are giving of their own time and interest, setting aside their interests in order to serve Christ. You know, they'd love to be over in an ABF, the people who are in the parking lot helping you park, the shuttle drivers who are coming and going the people who serve on committees and come up here in the evenings and give of their time away from their family, who share of their talents. Men and women, we are, we are in the presence of many Timothys and Epaphroditus. And you have to ask yourself, when is the last time that you honored them? When is the last time you said thank you to your ABF leader? When you picked up your kids on Sunday morning, did you tell the Sunday school teacher or the youth ministry leaders, thank you, thank you for what you're doing? When is the last time you wrote a note to those in leadership or serve on a committee in the, the women's or men's ministry or some other place, uh, the missions committee, and said to them, thank you for your faithfulness? There are those that are all throughout Wayside that are just like this. There are Timothys and Epaphroditus who are putting the cause of Christ above their own. As Epaphroditus served, he, he almost made the ultimate sacrifice of giving his life in verse 30, it tells us he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Now, when Paul says their service to him was deficient, he, he wasn't saying, look, you guys didn't cough up enough cash. What he was saying is, I, I am very thankful for the financial gift that you sent to me. But you know what is more important than the present you sent to me is the gift of your presence of you sending a person to come and minister to me, to impact me. He was thankful for what they gave, but he was more thankful for their life-on-life -life ministry that they had to him. You know, one of the things I love about Wayside is that life-on-life -life ministry we have with our missionaries. We, we support men and women who are missionaries, uh, not only faithfully financially, but in other ways. Clyde and Becky Porter were a missionary couple who recently retired after 30 years of service. And at their reception, Becky said this about Wayside. She said of our support of them, she said, some churches support you 
And some churches love you. I want this church to know that you have loved us well. It's not just the financial gift. It's the life on life, the care and the concern that our missions committee, that Rick and Hannah, that, that others who are involved, that are the frontline ministers to our ministers that are abroad, uh, they're able to say, this is a church that has loved us, not just tangibly showing it through financial support, but in other very real and needed tangible ways. Friends, God wants us to be those who give not just of our resources, but of our lives and our love. In Romans 12, 1, we're told, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You see, God tells us as believers, it's not enough just to put money in the plate. God wants us to put our lives in the plate to let our lives be everyday examples that others see as we live for him, as we show love to others. When Paul said that he risked his life speaking of Epaphroditus, he was speaking of one who was willing to make his life a living sacrifice. This word that he uses here is parabolami. Now, it's, a, it's an interesting word because it means to risk or expose to danger. It means to gamble with one's life. And you're saying, did the preacher just tell us to gamble for God and church? Yeah, I did. In fact, there was a society, there were a group of believers early in the church that called themselves the Paraboloni, not a paraboloni like you eat, but the Paraboloni after this word. And the word literally means the riskers, the gamblers. And they were those that were saying, we're willing to, to lay it all on the line as they minister to the sick, the imprisoned, and when possible, to make sure that martyrs and even enemies would receive a decent burial. In the city of Carthage, during the great pestilence of 252 AD, Cyprian was the bishop, and he joined the ranks of the gamblers, and he called on his congregation to do so. This is, this is where the plague was taking place, and people were living in fear. And when somebody would contract the disease, family members would literally push them out into the street, their loved ones, because they were so fearful of the plague. They would just put them out to die in the street. And what, what the believers in that day, the riskers, the gamblers would do, is they would come through and they would collect the sick and the dying. And they would serve them. And they would nurse them. And they ended up saving many not just physically, but for, for eternity as people came to faith in Christ. And they ended up arresting the spread of the plague by taking the diseased and the dead and the dying that were rotting in the streets out of the city to stop the plague from spreading. These believers were lights that were shining in the darkness as we talked about last time. And as a result, many people were saved. And Epaphroditus was one of these lights of his day. He was willing to lay it all on the line to risk his life for the sake of the gospel. He knew that any time he could have been put in prison for being a believer, he could have been facing the same death sentence that, that, uh, that Paul was facing as he went to Rome. Guilt by association, you're a believer, you're in jail along with Paul. Now, there are people like Paul and Epaphroditus in our day. We know that being a follower for Christ can cost us, but there are people throughout the world that they know it can cost them their lives. Here's a picture of one of those. This man is named uh, Rami Ayed. And he is a, well, I say he is, he was a believer in Gaza. At the age of 29, he gave his life for the Lord. 
He left behind a pregnant wife, his son that you see him holding, and another infant. He worked in the Bible Society in Gaza and was a leader in the Gaza Baptist Church. And when Hamas took control of Gaza, they told all the Christians they needed to stop sharing their faith. And they went to this man as one of the leaders and one who was there in the Gaza Bible Society, and they threatened him, and they said, we're watching you, and if you don't stop your work, we're going to kill you. But he continued to faithfully serve. And one night as he locked the doors of the Bible Society to make the 15-minute walk from where he was working to his home, he never made it to his earthly home. Because along the way, he was abducted, and then he was tortured. They know that from the multiple stab wounds, the gunshot, and the other marks of torture that were found when they dumped his body in the street on a Sunday morning as a warning to other Christians. He was a man who knew that he was risking it all for the gospel. Friends, would you continue to follow Jesus if we lived in a place like Gaza or over in Egypt right now where the Coptic Christians are facing death and persecution? If you knew that there were people watching Wayside and as you came in, they were taking down your license number or following you home or other things, would you continue to stand for Christ? Now, while we may not have to fear that, there are things that we have to fear. There's a day coming probably here in the U.S. where being a believer may mean you lose your life, but right now it may mean that you lose other things. Some of you here have told me of how you've lost a promotion at work, a place on a squad at school, or an opportunity to be in some situation because being a believer means that uh, you're counter to culture and it's not popular. You know, even, even as a believer, you can be ostracized by other believers if you take a stand for certain things, if you love certain people that are seen as sinners or the undesirable, you may have other Christians that suddenly say, you're not welcome in our holy huddle anymore because you're around those kind of people. Friends, what are you willing to risk for the gospel? You know, Jesus was willing to be shunned by the religious elite to show love to sinners. Are we willing to do that? We're called today to be a gambler for God, to put his interest above our own, as you consider what the cost may be for following Christ, maybe you're thinking, Roger, they're too high. And if you're thinking that, I want you to look at the cross one last time and to remember the cost of the cross, that Jesus Christ was willing to leave heaven to come to earth, to give up not just his glory to walk among us, but ultimately to give of the earthly life that he took on in order to give you and I the gift of eternal life. He gave it all. Are you willing to give your life to be an everyday example for others to follow? Rejoin me, please, as we close in prayer. Lord God, as we come before you today, considering the cost, I'm reminded of the words of that missionary Jim Elliott, who himself gave it all as a martyr for the cause of the gospel. As he said in his journal before he died, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, to gain that which he cannot lose. Lord God, even if we're called to give of our earthly lives, to die physically for your sake, we're not losing because we gain eternal life. We gain that which we look forward to. Paul himself knew this as he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And Father, would you help us to understand that. And then, Lord God, would you help us to have the courage to be those 
who step out and stand for you in our schools, our homes, where we work, wherever it is that you might place us, to be everyday examples of what it means to love you, Jesus, and live for you. We pray this in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There are men and women at the front who will pray with you if you have a need in your life. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.